James chapter 4. Turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James is one of the most practical books in the Bible, a book that we have all found application from already. We've noted so far in our study that our faith should be strengthened as we go through it. It should, be, it should bring stability to our walk. We should demonstrate real love. We should have self-control. And we should exercise humility. Tonight, we're going to see some things that we shouldn't do. Those are things we should do. We'll see some things we shouldn't do. In chapter 1, we saw that James got right to the point. He said, count it all joy. Count it nothing but joy when you fall into different kinds of trials. Because that builds your steadfastness and your endurance. In verses 13 to 16, he explained that sin comes because of our desire, but that good things come from God, from the Father of lights. He ends that chapter with be doers of the words and not hearers only. So in that first chapter, you see the three words that are up there are, do you count it all joy? Do you hear his word and do you do his word? In chapter two, James says that works of faith, our works of faith will not allow us to show partiality. It will not allow us to discriminate against the old or the young, the rich or the poor. He says in that uh, second chapter in verse 15. Don't just be professing your faith. Faith, if somebody comes to your door and is naked and destitute, give them something to eat, give them something to wear. And in verses 20 and 26, he repeats the premise of the book. Faith without works is dead. In chapter 3, he says that works of faith is controlling our tongue. It's a little thing, but it boasts great things. Starts great fires. No man can tame it. With it, we bless God and we curse each other, talk about each other. And then James chapter 4 starts out actually in James chapter 3. You know, the verses and the chapters were put in just for our convenience many years after Scripture was written. And so it wasn't part of the way it was written out by James as he wrote this letter. So I want to kind of just go back and remind you of a couple things from our study last week where James begins to contrast the good conduct, which are works done in meekness and with wisdom, versus the contracts of bitterness and self-envying and self-seeking from in our hearts. So the last few verses, starting with verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and envy and every and every evil thing are there, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, full of good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of those who make peace. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from the desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet, cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that that you spend it on your pleasures. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to look at this practical book, pray, Lord, that you will give us applications in our own lives. Let's pray that you'd speak to us individually as... um, as it applies to our life. But I also pray, Lord, that you would speak to us corporately 
as it applies to us as a church. So bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever known anybody that claims to be wise, but they act foolishly? They claim to be wise and have their act together, yet they're always acting foolishly. A true wisdom is measured by a person's character, not just in their words and what they have to say. You know that you can identify a tree, what kind of fruit tree it is, by the fruit that it produces. Well, that's true with people who are wise. You see the results. You can evaluate your wisdom by the way that you act. How are you using your, the wisdom that you have? How are you doing and applying what you have? And now I could go through those same list of questions saying you are people of faith. You profess faith in Jesus Christ. So how's it measuring up in your character? How are you using it in your daily life? Foolishness leads to disorder, but wisdom leads to acts of kindness and goodness and peace. Are you tempted sometimes to escalate the conflict? He's talking about wars. He's talking about strife. Are sometimes you ready to say to somebody, yeah, I feel that way about him too. You know, we ought to really go, let's go talk to the pastor. Let's get this, you know, let's get this guy. Are you trying to raise the conflict level? Do you pass things on as gossip? Do you fan the fire of discord when people aren't getting along? Do you, do you murmur right along with them and, and complain? Or do you stop it right there and say, let's deal with it? Careful, wise, loving words are the seed of peace. Careful, loving, wise are the, words, are the words are the seeds of peace. And God loves a peacemaker and will be called the sons of God. And that's what he's saying there at the very last verse of 18, or in verse 18 of chapter 3. And that's why I had asked Pastor Brandon to lead the first part and the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. Because so much of what James says comes right from there, or it's alluding to that, or in this case, it's very specific. That's what it's talking about. In verse 17, we note that before God's wisdom is peaceful, it is pure. uh, Being from God, it is holy, then peaceful and gentle. And it is so important that we remember that. So our desires, our fleshly desires are at war within us. We have that conflict going on. Um, We saw back in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, um, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. There's a battle that goes on with this. Paul deals with it in his own life in Romans 7, that great debate that takes place. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those things I do. Those are the things that Paul was fighting, this same battle. Lust is your desire for the things that you set your heart on. How many of us are really satisfied with what we have right now today? Completely satisfied, not looking for anything more or not looking for the world in its, in its ways taking what we have. Have you ever noticed that, that you, you've saved for retirement, you've got some money in savings, you've got uh, you know, a few extra things, and all of a sudden the world comes in and starts to take it away from you and you say, hey, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not coveting anything more, but I don't want to give up what I have. You know? Well, it's the same thing, okay? So it seems the more and more that we have, the more we want, we never get truly satisfied. 
And we can, and we, and the strife that we have towards one another can be brought out by the things that we have. When somebody gets a new motorhome in the church, be thankful that they got it and bless them for it. Don't murmur against them and don't say, well, you know, there's a two feet longer than mine and theirs has a super duper thingy in it. Mine doesn't have. No, be happy for them. Rejoice in them. So often we get complained and then we go sell ours at half the price that we paid for it. And then we get ourselves in debt for a bigger one that's two feet bigger than theirs. And, and we just, we shouldn't do that. We actually had, we actually had a good friend get mad at us because we we didn't ever have a motorhome or a camp. We had a, a family wagon, I think it was called. It was just a van with a with a back seat that kind of made it into a bed. But it was exactly what somebody else was was really desiring. And they got mad at us to where they wouldn't even speak to us anymore over that thing. And we could not we could not prevail. We couldn't win that one. And uh, you remember that, sweet? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was her it was her van. That's why she doesn't remember it. Uh, God promises are to those who pray, we see in these verses, not to those who fight, not to those who bring conflict. The petition, the petition of the lustful, murderous, and contentious is not recognized by God as prayer. If we prayed, there would be no wars, strife, and fighting. And so he answers the question, where do these come from? They come from our own lust, our own desires, our own sinful nature. But if we spent the time in prayer... We wouldn't do that. And I think that's where you see real church growth happen <coughs> when people come together and they're not overcritical of each other. In verses 2 and 3, James tells us we're like this because we do not pray. And when we pray, we pray with the wrong motives, praying for our own desires. And, you know, when we get together for pray, we seem to always have the same old laundry list of things that we need, we want, even Good things in people's lives that we're praying for. But praying should be to get our hearts linked up with God's heart. Getting his mind and our mind in sync. Praying should be finding out what his will is for our life. He knows our needs before we ask. He knows our pains. He knows our hurts. He knows all about Eric, but we seem to always want to go and make our list of those things that are pressing us. Now, I think that there's some good in that. But I think the part of prayer that we miss is that prayer with, Lord, show me what you want in my life. Lord, search my heart and see if there's any evil in my heart. It's those things that try to align us closer and closer with what he, what he wants. You know, he desires to bless us. We're his children. We're his family. He wants to do those good things for us. We need to find out what he wants us to do. We need to be seeking him. How can we please you, Lord? Give us direction in our life. Give us direction as a church. What kind of outreaches do you want us to be doing? We had a, a, I talked to one of you tonight, and it's interesting because two new people were sitting there eating dinner. Uh, does, I don't think they came to church, so I don't think I'm talking about them. Uh, but they came to dinner, and then they, they asked the question of one of, of one of us, why do you do this? And we, she was really great in her answers by saying, we do this as an outreach to the community. And, you know, they might come back for dinner again. We've got to remind them that there's a church next door they can come to, too, because maybe they didn't know that. But that's, that's what that's all about. When you see somebody new there that you haven't seen before, sit with them. You know, go sit with them and talk to them and get to know them. So important. In verses 4 to 12, 
He reminds his his readers that their own deeds are what draw them away from God. So let's read those verses. He starts out very strong. Again, this is a practical to-the-point book. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in, in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Remember that he's writing to a largely Jewish audience. He's speaking to them here with a lot of Old Testament terms. Most of those early Christians in the church had come out of the Jewish community into the Christian community, and they were still hanging on to a lot of their traditions. It's obvious from the way he's addressed the partiality here that he's probably speaking to those people who were rich in the church, not the poor, and how they were acting about it and how they weren't treating it well. In the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the bride and sometimes as the adulterer uh, by the different prophets. And in the Greek, it seems that here he just uses the word adulteresses. So it's talking about that. Those who are unfaithful to God, those who have been unfaithful by the way that they're living. Even the desire to be a friend wants to be a friend, he says, of the world makes one an enemy with God. And, you know, sometimes I get a little concerned when I hear Christians talking about, oh, I want to have a balanced life. I want to be enough in the world that I can communicate with the world, and I want to be enough in church that I can communicate with church. Well, there's a fine thing there, you know. It's okay to go out into the marketplace and into the restaurants and out with friends that aren't believers and to debate and to argue and to discuss the things of the spirit. But we have to be very careful about trying to become a friend, trying to engage in their lifestyle, trying to uh, prove our friendship with them by being friendship with the things or, that they do. So we have to be careful with that. But if you want to be a friend with the world, James tells you real clearly you're going to be an enemy of God's. In Matthew 6, we read, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The world here is those things that are at odds with the things of God, those things that are, in, that are fighting with us, lust, covetousness, hatred, wars, and fights, the things that James, James, James is, is listing out, that James, James has listed. How straightforward, how direct, how much application can you get out of that? Friends of the world, an enemy with God. Real straightforward. 
In verse 5, he talks about Scripture being in vain. You know what? Scripture can't be vain. Scripture, by its very nature, cannot be vain. So what he's saying, that all Scripture is good. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, and there's a whole list of things that it is good for, so that you and I may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit that dwells in us is jealous for us to be the friend of God. He comes into our life. He opens the scriptures to us. He talks to us. He convicts us of sin when we have sin because he wants us to be the friend of God. He wants us not to be yielding to the world, the world but he wants us to be praising God. So in verses 6 to 10, he goes on there and he says, the solution for strife is humility. And now he's going to give us a series of things that we need to do. An applicational book, a book, a very practical book. Some of these things are so straightforward, it's almost hard to explain them to you because they don't need much explanation. So let's look at those. So first in verse 6, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God couldn't give more grace than he's given in the fact that he gave his son. But he gives grace and he gives it to those... um, who are not compromising those who are humble. He will also grant us grace to serve him. But the grace comes when we become humble, when we ask the Lord to give it to us. He resists the proud. Grace and pride are eternal enemies. Grace and pride are eternal enemies. I thought I was going to trip tonight at dinner. I was talking to Jim, who's the new guy that's with us here tonight. And uh, I was telling him, he, I was carrying some dishes, and I said, boy, that's more than I'm, I'm allowed to carry, but I'm going to do it tonight, and I think I can do it. And I said, and you know what, now I'm prideful, I'm probably going to turn around and trip. He sh- assured me I wouldn't. He said, don't worry about it, you're going to make it, and I made it. But pride comes before a fall. And so I started to think about it. Why in the world are you prideful about how many dishes you can carry to the trash can? That's silly. <laughs> so um, even our humility does not earn his grace. It only puts us in a position to receive his grace. You know, pride demands that God bless us for who we are and what we do for our merits. But grace will not deal with us on anything that we have done or accomplished. It only deals with us based on who he is and his loving nature. So in 7 to 10, he continues on with some of these personal relationship things with him. Steps to be close to God. First, submit to God. And the language there says this means order yourself under God. Recognize that you are under God, that God is sovereign. He's in control. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's your King. Surrender to him and receive the benefits of his kingdom. Wouldn't it be great to be prince and princesses in that kingdom? Well, we are. We have to come under that authority and that, that uh, position that he's in so that he can bless us to what he wants to do. Resist the devil. This means to stand against the devil's deceptions and his efforts to intimidate. And the devil loves to intimidate. He loves to challenge us. I think all of us know our weaknesses. We all know places that we need to stay away from or things we need not to do, things we need not to see. 
how close we can get to it because we've had problems there before or we're challenged in that area. But we are to stand against, resist the devil. To solve the problem of carnality and the strife it causes, we must resist the devil. The nice promise there from God is that he will flee. You know, when, those, when Satan comes at you enough in different areas of your life and he can't win, he will finally leave you alone. But it takes a consistent rebuke by rebuke by not surrendering to him at all for him to finally leave you alone. Now, stay with these basics. Submit to God, resist the devil. You know, these things are not rocket science. These are pretty straightforward, practical, applicational things for us to, to do. Stay with these things. Time in his word. Time in prayer. Time in fellowship. Exactly what we're doing here tonight with dinner and our study. Accountability. That's probably one we could do a little better. Find somebody in our fellowship and go up to him and say, Hey, will you hold me accountable? Can I trust you with things? Can I come to you? and bounce things off of you or discuss things with you? And will you keep them in confidence? Can we have a serious relationship? I'll do it for you. Will you do it for me? Accountability is something I think is is something we desperately need. Turn away from those worldly things. In verse 8, he continues on. Draw near to God. How? Back to those basic things. In his word, in fellowship, in prayer. What a great promise he gives those of us who draw near to God. He will draw near to, to, to you. So if we draw near to God, he's going to draw near to us. If we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. Those are great promises. So submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. You know, God is constantly and consistently pursuing us. He always has and he always will. He pursued us when we were sinners he pursued us when we first got saved and he's, pers- and he's pursuing us now to continue to try to make us in to what he wants us to be. He's the same yesterday, today, and he will be tomorrow. He wants to seek us for our good. Over and over in the Old Testament, he, and I'm sorry, he wants us to seek him for our good. He knows the benefits. In the Old Testament, his chosen people were told to do that. And I want to read you. A few examples in Psalms 105. We read this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds to among the people. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. And then in Proverbs uh, 8. This was a great proverb, by the way. You should go. You should all go home. And dwell in Proverbs 8 for tomorrow. Just take the day off work. Call your bosses up. <laughs> say the pastor said it was okay. Dwell in the 8th proverb. It was uh, meaningful to me this week. It starts with this. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? And then in verse 6. Listen and I will speak of excellent things. And from the opening of my lips will come right things. For my mouth will speak truth. Verse 8, all the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing is crooked or perverse in them. They are all plain to him who understands. The right to those who find knowledge. And then verse 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. And then a passage that we all love in Jeremiah 29. 
verses 10 to 14. For thus saith the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good works towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I have towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And we all love that verse and we quote it so much. But then he goes on and says this, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me, And find me when you search for me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Seek the Lord, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. So in verses 8 to 9, he continues giving us straightforward, practical things that we can use in our life. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to him. Now he says, clean your hands and purify your hearts. Let's look at those verses. Uh, let's see, um, in the second half of verse 8, clear, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Pretty strong language for James to be writing to early church and, and young Christians. But I think it's important that he wants to realize, he wants to call it like it is. He wants to be very practical with this. As we draw near to God, the Holy Spirit... And I assume you're doing those things we talked about. You're having fellowship. You're praying. You're staying in the word. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin as he purifies our heart, as he draws us closer through the continuing process that we call sanctification. We will, as the ESV says, be wretched and mourn and weep. And that's where it says in verse 9, lament and mourn and weep. You remember the uh, discourse I mentioned a little while ago, Romans 7, where Paul was going back and forth, the things I do, the things I don't want to. I mean, there's a whole listing there, and you can tell the struggle that he has, that it wasn't something that was easy on him. He was really perplexed by it. But he ends with this. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Same word as uh, mourning here and as... Um, as lament and mourn and weep, is that wretchedness. Paul came to that place where he had to say that. And we know that Paul had a progression. As as, uh, Pastor Brandon mentioned, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. We have a lot of our, our doctrines and a lot of our theology comes from the things that Paul wrote. But we took his epistles and we looked at them chronologically. We're taking the the general epistles and we're just taking them kind of in their order. So James and then Peter and so on and so forth. But with Paul's, we we looked at him chronologically because we wanted to see a change in him. And we pointed this out during that study, but I'll point it out to you again. This is the progress of Paul as we read through his epistles. In one of his earliest epistles, 1 Corinthians, which was written around 54 to 55 AD, he wrote that he was the least of the apostles. So of all the... 12 apostles, he was the least of them, but he was in that pretty special group of guys. In Ephesians, which he wrote around 60 to 62 AD, about you know um, five to seven years later, he said, I'm the least of all the saints. So he went from an apostle to a saint, but he's still pretty good, and he's the least of all the saints. So it would be like, in our fellowship here, it would be like, Who wants to put their hand up and say, I'm the least of all the Christians here? Well, that's what Paul would be saying. I'm the least of everybody 
here as a, as a saint, as a Christian. Five years more, three to five years more, he writes to first, in First Timothy towards the end of his life. He's, he's ready to turn it over to Timothy and Titus and some of the other people. He writes, I am the chiefest of sinners. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote Romans, that whole dissertation on grace, saying at the end of his life that he's the chiefest of sinners. As he drew closer to God, God revealed more and more of the ugliness in his heart and in his life. And that is so true. If we submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to him, if we cleanse our hands or we purify our hearts by by asking the Lord to to uh, reveal things to us. If we get to a place where we mourn and we, we lament over the things that are in our lives, those things that we have, we will also come to that place to where we are so grateful for the cross because we'll rel- realize what kind of a sinner that we are. The other thing that I think happens as we go through these six things, you will grow in your walk of faith. Your faith will become stronger and you're living it out will become stronger and things that used to be a problem for you won't be a problem anymore. They'll go away. If you deal with them honestly before the Lord, if you take the things that are bothering you, the things that you have, if you're a bitter person, if you're an angry person, if you're a person who just can't keep a secret, if, if any of those things are bothering you and you deal with them and you deal with them in the, in this format, these six things that you've got, we've gone through here. Someday you'll say, wow, that's a good piece of information. I don't want to tell anybody. Somebody came to me and gave me a prayer request and I haven't told anybody and I've known about it for two months. And you say, I would have before I would have been on the phone right away. I would have put it on the prayer chain. You know, I would have gotten, I would have gotten it out there. So that's the way things happen. Yeah, spiritual gossip throughout the old and new Testament. God promises to provide for those who do these things, seek him, draw near to him. And James is still dealing with all of this about the strife and the fights. Now he's dealt with our relationship with God, and now he turns it to how he's going to relate to others. In verse 11 and 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Humbling ourselves and getting right with God is the most important thing to do first. But it must result in our getting right with other people as well. And sometimes we might have been hurt by somebody within our fellowship and we've carried that hurt and we've been unwilling to go and make make things right. If you do those first six things, get right with God, that will come up to where you will have an uneasiness until you get it right. You will make amends. When we're right with other people, it will show in the way that we talk about them. Have you ever gotten into a conversation and somebody's just really ragging with somebody else on somebody, and then you come into that into the conversation and you say, wow, you know, that person's always been good to me. They've always, you know, when I was sick, they brought me meals and they did this and that. And how fast that conversation just stops. You can do, you can do that with your words. We will not speak evil of another. We will not judge our brothers and our sisters. When we find fault with others, we are judging them. And sometimes we don't even judge to the law. We don't even judge to God's standards. We judge them to our standards. 
You know, a Christian is someone who looks like, acts like, and talks like me. And we judge to those standards. If, if I am convicted on things, I want you to be convicted on those things. If I have liberty in things, I want you to have those liberties. That's not the way it works. It's okay for you to have a liberty that I don't have. It's okay for me to have a restriction that you don't have. But we are all one in the body of Christ. We all have that ability. Humbling ourselves and the way that we behave with each other. Uh, James is rightly instructing us against illusions that we might be right with God, yet evil towards one another. That can't be. If you're right with God, you won't be evil towards one another. First John 4.20 says this, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And that's the same basic idea that human- humility that James is writing about, when we have proper humility before God, how could we arrogantly, arrogantly judge our brothers or sisters. And then in verse 13 and 16, James talks to us about having an attitude of independence from God. He says, come on now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city. We'll spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life. It, it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or do that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. James rebukes the kind of thinking that we aren't just a vapor. I think one of Pastor Chuck's most favorite sermons that I've ever heard him give is life is just a breath away. And, you know, we think death is just a breath away that, that, you know, a heart attack or something like that was just one breath and we could be gone. His sermon was life is just a breath away. Eternal life was just a breath away from a perspective. But he really brought out the importance of us all being aware that it really could end at any given time. The example he's using here is that we get so caught up with we're going to do this and we're going to do that. We're going to have all this type of life. And we forget to put God in the equation. We forget to say if the Lord wills. And that is so important. He, he, he rebukes that kind of a heart that lives, that makes plans apart from God. We should not do that. We should constantly be saying, thy will be done. Lord, here's my schedule today. This is what I have planned out. But if you want to change it, I'm willing to accept it however you want to do it. We should understand our limitations. Haven't we all been guilty of this one, though? Taking matters into our own hands, making our own plans, not including God in the process, and then having to come back and ask God first to help us get out of the mess we're in and then show us what his plans are and what his will is for those situations. I've done that. Um, James asks us to consider the frailty of human life and that we live and move by the permission of God. The Bible says that God holds all things together, and that includes us. You know, he's not discouraging us from planning, setting, up, setting goals, but he wants us to do that relying on God and making God a part of those plans and that goal. It's only prideful arrogance that has this independent spirit to think that we can live without God. Um, prideful, independent arrogance 
is the essence of sin. It was for Satan and it was for Adam. It is better, it says in verse 15, if the Lord wills. Again, remember, prayer is just getting to know what God wants us to do. And so we should be asking about that. So verse 17, talking about practical application. If you know to do good, you don't do it. It's sin. I hate that verse. I just hate it. Because when it's my, it's my most unfavorite verse in the whole Bible. Because if you know that littering is a sin because you're not obeying the laws of the land and you throw something out the car window, you better stop and go back and get it because it's a sin. God will put all kinds of things in you. If you play with this verse, you read this verse and understand it. Those of you who have worked around the conference center know that you don't walk over paper here. If you walk in and you see paper on the floor or ground, you pick it up. When from now on, if you know to do good and you don't do it, guess what it is, okay? <laughs> we who know to do good must do good. We can't just ignore it. We can't just say, oh, I, I'm not going to get involved in that. It's a practical, applicational of what he's talking about. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Don't just say, be filled and be warmed and go your way to the person who's naked and destitute. Give him a blanket. Give him five bucks. Bring him down to the food closet. Do something. Make it practical. Chapter 1, we saw endurance, be steadfast in trials, pray for wisdom, endure sinful temptations, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Lay aside all of your filthiness, receive the implanted word, and do good. Chapter 2, don't show partiality, show you have faith by your works, feed and clothe the naked and destitute. Chapter 3, if, if, if a teacher, if you want to be a teacher, be careful, be careful because more will be asked of you. Control your tongues. Show good conduct and do everything without partiality and meekness and wisdom. Chapter 4, the things we just did. And now chapter 5, more admonitions. More of what living faith looks like. All of you who call yourself Christians, we ought to spend a lot of time in James. We ought to be reading James over and over and over. I'm going to read it more than I have just from the preparation and the study. We see here in the fifth chapter that James is going to be dealing with the rich again. And it seems like maybe this was a problem at the time that he had to deal with. Uh, telling the people not to give them special attention. Uh, telling them to submit to God and humble themselves. Which would be hard for rich people to do. You know, when you have enough money to take care of your problems, sometimes you don't rely on God. Sometimes you just write a check and take care of the situation those who sometimes don't have that privilege of just writing a check have to rely on God a lot more. Um, he tells them to submit to God. Well, the rich have a hard time submitting. They don't need to. Humble themselves. They don't do that well. We see that in our, our political thing. We've got some very rich people wanting to be president of a very poor country. At least they tell us we're all poor, you know. Uh, telling them they don't depend on your own independence. Well, rich people, again, are independent. So maybe that just is what James was writing to as when he wrote this letter. So let's look at chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments and moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their, their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
You have reaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of your laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned or judged. You have murdered, you know, hated in your heart, the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the earthly and the, the early and the latter rains. Now telling them that their riches are corrupted. Three types of things that you had to show your wealth in the early church or in the Jewish culture that they were coming out of. Your food supplies, how much food you had, the type of clothing that you wore, and how much gold and silver you had. And he hits all three. He says your food is going to be corrupted or rotted. Your clothes are going to be moth-eaten. And your gold is going to, your gold and silver are going to be corroded. He tells them in verse 4 and 5 of their injustice of their business practices, of their lifestyle of pleasure and luxury. The just, probably those of verse 6, the poor and without power did their labor without resistance. They took advantage of the poor. The poor went out. They worked. They did their work. They got their measly money. They got their subsistence level. And they continued to do that just to get by and just to have their families taken care of. In light of this abuse, James says in verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Like the farmer who waits for the harvest patiently. You know, harvesting is a lot more specific and a lot more detailed than I thought, especially harvesting like fruits off of trees. You can't pick them too early. You have to wait for the right time. And so that's what he's saying here. Just be patient like the farmer. The Lord is coming. The Lord is going to take care of this. So he's writing to the entire Jewish population that had been dispersed, the rich and the poor alike. He says in verse 8, Establish your heart. Resolve to go in a direction. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Is it imminent? You also be patient, he says in verse 8. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, and that judge has the right to judge. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, you count them blessed who endured. You have heard of the uh, perseverance of Job and seen. The end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, neither by heaven or, or by earth or, let you, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't grumble. Poor people, don't complain about the rich and the abuse of the rich. Rich, don't grumble against the poor. Don't complain about them not getting the work done. And he gives examples of prophets and of Job. And we could talk for days about the prophets and what they went through. Um, Enduring and steadfast in trials. They counted it all joy. Allowing God's sovereign work to be revealed in their lives. But let me just give you one example of just Jeremiah. 
out of someone who endured mistreat, mis, um, mistreatment with patience. In Jeremiah 20, he was put in the stocks. In Jeremiah 32, he was thrown into prison. In Jeremiah uh, 38, he was lowered into a miry dungeon. Yet he continued in his misery, says he continued in his misery. So, so Jeremiah was put out, and that's the example that James is using. They endured those trials. They endured them patiently. In verse 12, he says, do not swear. Be a person of your words is what he's saying. Don't try to swear by, you know, I'm going to swear on my, by my mother's name or I'm going to swear by God or I'm going to swear by the, by the tabernacle or something higher. Don't do it by earth and don't do it by heaven. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say you're going to do something for somebody, do it. If you volunteer to come down on a work day, show up. You know, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Verses 13 to 20, exhortations for Christians care for one another. So verse uh, 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for, on the land for three and a half years. And he prayed again, and the earth, then the heavens gave its rain, and the earth produced its fruit. If one is suffering, pray. Afflicted like the prophets and like Job in verse 10, and if one is cheerful, sing songs. Now, sometimes I think those two things should be reversed. If you're suffering... It really helps to sing. If you're going through a time of misery, sing some choruses. Sing some hymns of promise. Our, how faithful is our God? You know, this is my story. Blessed assurance. You're going through a tough time? Sing. That's not what it says here. It says, if you're suffering, pray. But if you're cheerful, I think it's a great time to pray. Things are going right. You pray and say, God, what do you want me to do? I guess I can, can, kind of came out to the conclusion, whether you're suffering or whether you're cheerful, do both. Sing and pray. Okay, so sorry, that's, sorry, James, that's my, my uh, interpretation. Um, and verse 14, if you're sick, call for the elders and pray. Pray for one another is so important. We have back in the alcohol, alcohol here every Sunday night, a couple of the elders go back there and wait for you to come who need prayer. You can go back there and pray for anything that you need. They will anoint you with oil. They'll pray for healing. They'll pray for anything that you're going through. Uh, they're there to talk to you and to pray with you. I'm going to love you and pray for you, and there's nothing you can do about it. I heard that said, and I've said it a couple times now to my granddaughters. What a powerful statement. You know, Jim, I love you, and I'm going to pray for you, and there's nothing you can do about it. What a powerful statement to say to somebody who's kind of fighting back against you as you're witnessing to them, to just be able to say, I love you, and I'm going to pray for you. Oh, and there's just nothing you can do about it, you know, because they can't. And it's such a... <laughs> okay, I'll do all three times, you know. So, but, but we can do that, and that's what we're called to do. I have a, a thought. You might take it as a challenge, but I have a thought. 
what would happen if you picked out somebody in the congregation, somebody over there or somebody over there, and you didn't tell them, but you just prayed for them like crazy this week. You prayed for them every day. You made a point. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Wake up and go to bedtime. I'm praying for that person over there. And you don't tell them. A couple weeks from now, they come in and say, you can't believe what's happened in my life. And they give you this great praise report. And that's when the Lord tests you because you're going to sit there and say, oh, I've been praying for you two weeks. Remember when Pastor Mike said that about praying for somebody and not telling them? I'm the one that was praying for you. You just blew it. You just lost your whole reward. But wouldn't it be... But wouldn't it be powerful to just pick out somebody, take a look around the congregation and just really commit to pray for them? I think it would be I think it would be a fun experiment. You can do it or not. It's up to you. Verse 15 and 16, the prayer of faith and the prayer of the righteous man. We all have to have some faith when we pray. Um, We often don't pray about things because we do just take care of them ourselves. But I think we should still pray for them. I think sometimes we don't pray for things because it's such a miracle that we're asking for that we don't want God to be embarrassed. I'm going to pray for this person's healing. I'm going to pray for this curing of cancer or giving somebody their sight back. And we don't pray for that because we don't want to bring God down in the process. God can handle it. He can handle being embarrassed. We need to pray for those things that need to be prayed about. And so I think we should be bold in our prayer and not worried about things. The prayer of faith may do more. It may raise the dead. It may bring people to repentance. I like the way that that was equated, that raising the dead or bringing somebody to salvation, both of those are bringing people to life. Uh, the only way to pray as a righteous man, it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, is to remember that your righteousness is in God. It's because of God. It's because of his grace. It's not because of the way you wholly lived this last week and you made it three days without doing anything wrong. And so now you've become a uh, righteous person and you can effectively pray. That's not how you do it. It's because of the grace and the justification and the cleansing that God has given you. That's what makes you righteous. I think it is good um, to confess your sins before you pray or when you come to prayer. I think it's time, a good way to start a prayer is to ask the Lord to search your heart. See if there is anything that you need to deal with before you go to him and to cleanse yourself. We've been doing that in our men's fellowship. And I like that minute of silence that we have to ask the Lord to reveal our hearts to us as we come to a time of prayer. Verse 16 was an interesting verse because most of us don't do this. um, And I think we can really take it out of context and put it almost into a situation uh, like used to be practiced in the Orthodox Church. And that is to confess your trespasses one to another. it's, It's hard to kind of even talk about that. Well, what are you talking about here? But you know what? Sin likes to have you isolated from other people. If you have a sin you're dealing with and you ask the Lord to forgive you and then you do it again and the Lord asks you to forgive you and you're struggling with this, you're kind of isolated in that process. But if you go up to that accountable person, that person that you have that's accountable, you pick out somebody that you can trust, somebody that can really work with you on this, and you go up to him and you say, you know what, I've been struggling with this. 
I want to confess this to you. I really could use some more prayer. I could really use some help in that thing. I think that that's a strengthening thing. I think that you now know somebody knows and can hold you accountable. Somebody's praying for you. Somebody's going to ask those questions. Sin likes to keep you isolated. But but confession breaks the power of those secret sins. I see that happening in our men's group with that little bit of time that we've been spending. James uses the example of Elijah. He was able to control the weather. Or did he? Did he? Or did he just get his heart in tune with, with what God had planned? God planned three and a half years of drought and the rains coming and the three and a half years and the fruit coming. And Elijah was able to bring that out when he got his heart in line with God. Verses 19 and 20. Guiding somebody back who's wandered from the faith. Important things, James. Practical things. Things that we sometimes as a church, not us, just us in the church, but the church at large has not always done well. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from his errors of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Having just discussed sin and confession, James now tells us the need to bring others back and to welcome them. Those who have wandered from the truth. I think it's a good picture, wandering from the truth. People who have stepped outside of the uh, examples of what a life of faith looks like that James has given us. You know, most people don't leave the truths of God deliberately. They don't make a decision. They don't make up one more, wake up one morning, have a cup of coffee and say, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore, or I'm not going to live a Christian life, or I'm going to really take God at his word and, and, and just live in his grace and go out and sin like crazy. Nobody deliberately does that like that. It just happens. It kind of drifts away. But it still gets them off the track and possibly in danger. And that's why you go back to James chapter 4 and you do those six things. You submit to the Lord. You resist the devil. You, you, you seek him. You draw near to him. You cleanse yourself. You purify your hearts, even if it means coming to a place of laying on the floor and mourning and weeping over your sins. As you grow closer to God, that may happen. There's a blessing in this who loves his brother enough to comfort him when he is messed up. And who can turn someone from their error while they're messing up. He has saved a soul from death. He has brought them back and it covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sin. I think James concludes with this verse and this practical application because the main theme of what James has been talking is about confronting those who are wandering from living a life that demonstrates a work of faith. If you have had a work of faith in your life, if you're a Christian, you're a believer then there are certain things that we've been studying in the last three weeks that our lives should look like. If you're having a trouble with those, I think James is saying we can work together to help each other. 
to have them come to the place where they should be doers of the word and not just hearers. That's what James is after. And by living it out, prove that they have a living faith. That's what I'm hoping for us, is that we continue to live a life that represents that we have a faith. And so for us, let's go out and live it out. Let's just go out and do it and prove that we are men and women of faith. That's what James is all about. And for those who have wandered from our fellowship, and some of you may know people who have wandered, maybe they're living in what we would call a worldly way. They've become a friend of the world. Go bring them back. Go tell them you love them. Go spend time with them. Go take them to lunch. Go buy them a cup of coffee. Tell them you miss them. Love on them. You know, you can tell them, I'm going to love you. And I'm going to continue to pray for you. And there's just nothing you can do about it. Let's pray.